0: Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Jeff Bloodworth. Barack Obama has given his fifth State of the Union address. And if you're a political junkie like me, you of course stayed up and watched it. And if you're a super-duper political junkie, you even watched the Republicans reply to the State of the Union. Now, I don't know if you're a super-duper-duper duper political junkie, but you would have to have been to have actually watched the other reply to the State of the Union address, and that was delivered by Rand Paul. Now, what is most fascinating to me in 2013 um, is is really not about the Democratic Party. It's really about the Republican Party and the political right um, because the Republicans had two replies to the state of the union address and I tell I think it says a lot about the the disarray uh, and the infighting that's going on within the Republican Party. Um, and, and that's why this week, um, in, in sort of honor of the State of the Union Address, and to put it in a little bit of polit- uh, historical context, I interviewed Kevin Matson, who's written a really fine book called Just Plain Dick, Richard Nixon's Checker Speech and the Rocking Socking Election of 1952. This is put out by Bloomsbury Press. It came out just last year. It's written with verve, with humor, and and... and Matson has a very his own very inventive sort of style of writing, um, and he actually makes Richard Nixon interesting again. And for us, at least, um, in understanding the State of the Union address and understanding the Republicans too replies. Uh, what Mattson has done is he's putting um, the the Tea Party and the modern new right into historical context. And what he's arguing is that uh, Richard Nixon's checker speech is kind of the prototype of the earth speech of the new right and what we call the Tea Party. And what I think is especially um, correct um, about this book is that he doesn't you know, fall into this, you know, the, the the idea that there's a dichotomy between the establishment modern, you know, the establishment moderate Republican Party and the Tea Party, you know, it, because Nixon was both at, at the same time a part of the establishment um, um, and it is was seen especially by the time he became, he became president as you know part of the Eisenhower wing, but he always had a foot in the other side in the, in the in the more conservative and aggressive side of the republican party and and so what Mattson argues is that the checker speech um, is really what's kind of established a template for the new right and what we call the Tea Party today. And so this is a book if you want to understand what's going on inside the Republican Party. I think you really need to read this book. And cuz I, I I think it helps get rid of this sort of false dichotomy that um, is sort of the you know, oh there's the there's the, the establishment Republicans and there is the Tea Party. Yes, they are different wings of the Republican Party, but they also have very common roots. So um, listen to the interview, buy the book, read it, tell your friends, um, and I, I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Kevin Mattson, welcome to uh, New Books in Politics. How are you doing?
1: Good to be with you. How are hey, you doing?
0: Doing well, doing well. Uh, on today's show, we have Kevin Matson, and uh, we're going to talk about his book, Just Plain Dick, (laughs) Richard Nixon's Checker Speech and the Rocking Socking Election of 1952. Um, Kevin, why don't you start off by telling uh, uh, the listeners just a little bit about you, you know, education, your biography, that sort of thing?
1: Sure. Um, I was born in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, uh... in nineteen sixty six i um... it was an easy place for me to get engaged in politics which i did at a pretty young age becoming a, a young political activist in that area Um i eventually decided that i wanted to get a better handle on history and politics so i started to um, uh... start my career as an undergraduate at the new school for social research and then did a phd at the university of rochester um, Uh, and got that in 1994. Um, From that point, I uh, helped to run a nonprofit center that worked on issues of democratic participation and then wound up getting a teaching position at Ohio University in 2001 and have been here since. And most of the teaching and uh, writing that I do deals with the kind of intersection between politics and ideas in America's past.
0: Hmm. So... Would you say? I mean, you, you grew up in D.C. and sort of the height of the re- age of Reagan.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was I was there in the 1980s, and it was a uh, and uh, was the person who organized uh, counter inaugural hmm. um, protest in 1984. In fact, uh, that's where, in many ways, I cut my teeth uh, in politics, and I also learned how to write. I always point this out to people, but I learned how to write by putting together newspapers and um, fanzines. I was was also connected to uh, the the D.C. punk rock scene uh, of the 1980s, which also has some claims to fame, so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, from the title of this book, especially, you know, I mean, I can tell in your writing style throughout the narrative, but especially how you open, um, you know, in your introduction. I mean, you have a distinctive style, right? That's you know, like, It seems to me it's just distinctive. Um, I mean, you want to do you want to talk about like you know? Let's start with the title. I mean, there's a certain kind of I don't know, a little bit sort of um, would you call it Gen X cynicism um, or in your face kind of humor? Uh, It could be, you know.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, it could be. Of course, the title is actually uh, there's a reference to it, yeah. um, Which is that this is actually and and it's kind of a fascinating one because this is one of the first political speech is to ever get covered in the entertainment industry press. Yeah. Um, So variety uh, reviews it and um, compares it to, um, to, to the soap operas of the day and age, Mm -hmm. um, which often had the, the front running line of just plain, Sal or mm-hmm. whatever the name of the, of the central character was. Yeah. And so they came up with just plain Dick because they thought that they were watching a kind of soap opera mm-hmm. performance on the part of this guy running for the vice presidency. Um, I love the title because I also thought it kind of gave you the sense, not just of uh, you know, had a, it, I think, Probably capture some people's attention just by the title, but it's also it gives you the sense that this is a guy trying to paint himself as a populist. Here's yeah. a guy who's just been exposed as taking money from, uh, you know, the oil industry, bankers, uh, real estate people, and yet what he does is he comes off as a common, ordinary, average man of the people, uh, and mm-hmm. so he becomes just plain dick. Um, and that so I wanted the title to kind of reflect, uh, you know, a title that that maybe captured people's eyes, but also. Uh, represented what was in the book um which is which is a treatment about this guy, and I wanted to get inside his his mindset as, yeah. as best as i possibly could and that's that's always a there's dangers with that because you can always project your own kind of feelings and sentiments onto actors from the past and and that can get you into troubled waters but um you know I wanted to paint a picture of this guy um and to paint him as what he was, which was a you know a young person on the cusp of potentially making or breaking his entire political career and uh, give you a sense of the sort of, you know, um, sweaty, scared, um, Mm. attitude that he, that he brought to, to the, the crisis that prompts the speech.
0: Yeah, no. Um, you know, when I first saw this book, my first thought was, huh, why a book about, you know, Richard Nixon? And then I read the book and then I was, you know, it's a, it really is a great read. And then, you know, knowing your other work, I'm like, Oh, well now it totally, Okay, it may, it makes a lot of, a lot of sense. I mean, do you want to just talk kind of broadly? What is it, the, the speech? You kind of alluded to that, but you know, talking about how sure. the speech, this sort of fake populism of the right.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one of the key things that you know for for our um, contemporary uh, political atmosphere. Less so in the last presidential election, but certainly throughout the, the 2000s as we've lived through them, yeah. um, there's been that that sort of ability that the right has used to. Mm-hmm. See itself in in opposition to elites, which yeah. are characterized not by people who necessarily have a lot of money or a lot of property, but who might be educated, um, who might be snobbish, um, and so forth and so on. For richness, that was if you were Ivy League educated and East Coast, you were pretty much a, a member of the American elite, yeah. um, even if you didn't necessarily have a lot of money to yeah. go along with that. But but so he, you know, he's what he's doing in this speech. Um, again, the the, the original crisis that he has to address is that he's been seen taking a, uh, building a fund that's been contributed to by a uh, California businessmen that are in oil and, and banking and real estate, um, to, uh, give him more money that he can use to campaign with. And, um, you know, he's, he, he, people felt that he wasn't, um, upfront about the, the existence of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets exposed in, in a liberal magazine, in a liberal newspaper. Um, and that's, of course, one thing because for Nixon, that means that this is kind of a, this could be a potential conspiracy on the part of liberal elites within yeah. the mass media. And he always hated the media. The, the hatred of the, of the, of the media goes all the way back to 1952 and even, I think, earlier than that. And so he's, he's trying, he's trying to explain himself on national television. Um, and he, in process, Creates the the most highly watched um, uh, uh, speech in in history up to that point in time because of TV, and um, you know, and in the, in the process of doing making the speech, his whole goal is to paint himself as an ordinary average Joe, and um, you know that that's again why that feeling of just plain Dick comes yeah. comes right out of out of the speech. Um, so I, my my interest is is not just in the speech, but in the ways in which you know. Someone again who's who's clearly kind of palling around with with fairly wealthy businessmen mm-hmm. suddenly can paint himself as a as a as a radical populist as a as a true man of the people.
0: Yeah, and um, so I mean, you start off your book, you know, it's it's in italics. We start off the book inside kind of Nixon's head and sort of you know trying to understand, I guess, the the mindset he has as he's approaching to write and then deliver a speech that's going to decide the rest of his political career. Um, and I, and I never really thought about this speech as sort of like the template or the earth speech of sort of the modern, right. I mean, it, yeah, it, yeah,
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think that there is, I mean, of course you can go to other places and, and find things, but I really think as far as like a high profile event, a high profile guy like Nixon, this mm-hmm. is where you're seeing the template of, of right-wing populism um, of this sort of aggressive attack on elites, yeah. um, this sort of you know the victimization that is so prevalent on the right, um, especially <laughs> the victimization because of the you know the mass media has to get you. Yeah. Um, I think some of the kind of paranoia. And and conspiracy thinking that I think is is pretty evident on the right today. You can see it in Nixon. I, I one of the things that I discovered. I was talking to the, uh, another person about the book the other day, and said, what what was the most interesting thing you discovered? And one of the more interesting things I discovered was a speech that Nixon made during the campaign, um, in which he's on the West Coast. And uh, he makes the allegation that unless Dwight Eisenhower is elected president, and of course him as mm-hmm. vice president, that there would be an imminent possibility of an invasion of the <sighs> Soviet Union. <laughs> that would enter on the west coast of the United States. Uh-huh. And and you know, I, I realized that you know, I, it was amazing um to hear that sort of that sort of language. Yeah. Um, and that sort of kind of I mean the notion that the, the the Soviet tanks were kind of being juiced up and ready yeah. to go. Yeah. Um uh, it was it, that was that sort of paranoia and conspiracy um, and talking about a kind of dark, sinister world out there that we need a strong man to to fight back against, all that stuff is really, I think, you know, <laughs> very evident still today um, on yes. the right end of the spectrum. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I got to admit, I've, I've in the afternoons, I, I, I tune into Glenn Beck. Just for I just mm. want to check in. Oh yeah, I, you know I, I, about ten fifteen minutes worth on my drive home. <laughs> that's about
1: as much as you can. Yeah, uh-huh.
0: I, I can't take him seriously. Rush Limbaugh right. might make me like you know wreck the car. Glenn Glenn Beck is just sort of humorous. Um, but it's yeah. the same apocalyptic rhetoric, you know. And and that's what's that's interesting because right. you know because it made me think about this in a different way. Because and I think you're right. You don't call it the ni- the Eisenhower era the nineteen fifties. You don't know, you, you say it's the Nixon era. Why is yes. it the Nixon era?
1: Well because you know, I mean I have always thought that I that the I mean that is the that's the right that's usually what is used to describe the nineteen fifties is the yeah. Eisenhower era. Um I think actually Richard Nixon and and I think the speech makes this really evident is the one who's really speaking to the type of person who's becoming more prevalent yeah. during the nineteen fifties. And that's the kind of um, you know, white collar um, person living in the suburb who's, who's increasingly um, interested in, in purchasing, you know, the consumer items that we understand the 1950s to be about offering more of. And I think that Nixon is, is kind of speaking and can connect to those people in a way that an older General and hero um, really wasn't as able to yeah. to connect that he couldn't yeah. speak to those people. Now, you know, of course, the Eisenhower presidency is, is is you know if you're I think you can still call it the Eisenhower years. Um, because his presidency defines so much of it. But in terms of the feelings mm-hmm. um, in the political culture, I think Nixon is is tapped into something much more than, than Eisenhower ever was. One of the things that's, I think, very clear to me about, about the way that Nixon kind of outshines Eisenhower during the 1952 um, campaign is that in some ways, it, it, you know, Nixon... Is the sort of guy that a that a person who's working at a corporation who might have been kind of um, stiff armed by his boss for a yeah. raise or something like that. Mm-hmm. Nixon gets into that, like you can feel that sort of resentment, and I think that's the more average American experience than you know a highly decorated wartime <laughs> hero. Yeah, um, yeah, so, I, mean, I think Nixon is, is part of that feeling of that time. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, you talk about like this is the story about the everyman. And, yep. you know, and so Nixon is able to tap into the, quote, unquote, every man or every woman. And it's sort of a um, and, and I have thought about this, too. I mean, you know, Eisenhower somehow or another, you know, after, you know, what, 20 years out of power, the Republicans, you know, Eisenhower's a war hero. It's sort of a given that he's going to win and defeat Stevenson. But in 1960, mm-hmm. Nixon on his own. You know not only nearly wins right I mean he wins several kind of key border states, and that's right I've always wondered like you know like you already are seeing kind of Nixon able to building a coalition kind of it's you know it's presaging what becomes kind of the reagan era is is, is there anything to that
1: I think there is i mean i think that i i think that he knew i think that you know um he, the Republican party in nineteen fifty two split. Right. Yeah. um and 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 divided in in numerous different ways, I think that the sort of the sort of populist uh at least projecting a populist image um of, of campaigning the way Nixon campaigned in fifty
0: two hello kevin
1: there's another there's other wings i mean yeah. there's you know there's the dewey wing and mm-hmm. and those are guys who are very uncomfortable with the populist stuff they're very uncomfortable. With the you know hyper aggressive Cold War stuff, they're they're really not they're they're not comfortable at all, and there's yeah. and so there's these battles within the Republican Party. I think Nixon understands that for the Republicans to be successful, they have to have a kind of populist tinge. Get get out of the whole notion of we're a bunch of wealthy East Coast guys, mm-hmm. um, which was I think the perception of them. The fact that he came from the West already showed that you know uh, his identity was bound to something that lay outside of the of, of the kind of East Coast leads, um, which I think, again, you know, someone like a Dewey um, was much more, um, uh, was much closer to. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, what Nixon is doing in 52 by building that kind of the, the, the that sort of popular mobilization um, for the Republican Party that had been out for quite some time, as you point out, is, is similar to what he does in 60. I think it's very similar to what he does what he eventually gets, right I mean the yeah. dream that he gets is really 1972 mm-hmm. um, when he just did you know he trounces and that's, and that's the place where I mean you can still hear the sort of populism, you can hear yeah. the sort of you know all that stuff that you are you you heard twenty years ago in 1952. You hear kind of amped up again. I think he's very conscious. I think he's very conscious, and knowledgeable about some of what he's doing. Some of it, I think, is just. I mean, some of it is probably also um, you know dumb luck to a certain extent. But but I think that 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 you know this is a guy who's very in tune with. I, I would say not necessarily politics, but certainly in tune with what it takes to campaign as a Republican and to win and what you have to do to do that. And and some of that is say, is saying you got to get down and dirty yeah. um, and you got it. You know, you got to, ha- you got to run a rocking socking sort of campaign. You're yeah. not going to get it. If you, if you, if you're, you know, kind of um, too soft on your opposition. So the attack yeah. on Stevenson too, is so central to the book. And it's about, you know, how, I mean, they're not only Nixon doesn't only want to You know, criticize Stevenson. He wants to pillory Stevenson. He wants to make Stevenson appear as if he's kind of like out of the mainstream. Hmm. Um, And it's an an amazing job. It picks up on the fact that Stevenson's divorced. His wife is saying that she's going to vote Republican in 1952. What could that be about? Insinuations of homosexuality. He's an intellectual. He's an egghead. All those types of. Depictions, I think, are important for the way that that Republicans and especially the the right element in in the Republican Party has had a successfully run campaigns.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's the Gingrich model that well, it's the Nixon model, I guess, that Gingrich brings to the House in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. We're not going to yeah. just defeat you; we're going to destroy you. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, thinking you're,
1: of politics as warfare. Yeah, yeah
0: your your entire yeah. credibility. So I, this is the thing I've always struggled with Nixon is he an establishment moderate republican or is he a right wing is he a conservative
1: yeah no that's a good question i my sense of it is that he governed he 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 tended to govern um during his presidency um domestically uh as a moderate he campaigned as mm-hmm. a hard right Betsy populist yeah. and i think he he was you know he was um I think he, he, he thought about ways to keep those two different worlds kind of separate from one another. Yeah. Um, but on the, on the other hand, you know, he also, I mean, you know, what, what certainly, stay, you know, there's, there's that difference within him. But I think what, one of the things that, that, that he's consistent on is the sort of paranoia um, mm. about being attacked and, and never to be weak-kneed. Um, in terms of any political opposition he might come to face with, and I think you see that clearly defined for him in the Checkers moment, and then you know you see that playing itself out, um, you know after he wins his second term as president, and, and the and the discovery of the enemies list, and the and the the whole you know the, the rat fucking things that he's doing in 1972, all those horrible. Uh-huh. Um, you know, strategies that he's employing. Those are all things that I think, you know, he in some ways knew he had to do already by nineteen fifty two. How yeah. you govern once you win power. Yeah. Um I think he's he's still a little bit more moderate in many yeah. ways. And so you know he was they, of, in nineteen fifty two he was seen as he was seen especially on foreign policy issues. Yeah. Um and on the on the hunt for, for for, you know, lingering communists in the United States. He was seen as hard-right. Yeah. He was seen much more, and he was much more seen as a pal of Joseph McCarthy. And that's something that made Eisenhower very, very uncomfortable. With
0: him. Yeah. And then he sort of once in power, especially in 68, he had become kind of a figure of the establishment. And then, yeah. of course, the new right can't stand him, or at least they don't like his foreign policy. And then, well, of course, they hate him after Watergate. I mean, this is just – it made They already think, hate
1: him when he tries to run for governor, too. You know I mean? thats, oh, that's yeah, that's, that's right. About, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he –
0: He's not made, you know, his
1: friendships. I think he's always seen as someone who's so slippery, yeah. right? So that even if he pals around with a Joseph McCarthy in 1952, you know, I don't – I think and, – and McCarthy's, you know, I, I, I'm clearly a, a, an ally with him. Yeah. I, I don't think he ever makes people feel that he's solidly in their camp. That's one of the things that the, that the campaign of 52 shows is that hmm. he, in the beginning of the book, is playing all of his cards. He, yeah. He's not coming out – clearly and saying we should get, you know, Eisenhower should be your choice. He's kind of like hiding and, and cloaking what it is that he believes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it's, it's that element of distrust that, uh, that that goes along with the sort of paranoia of him that makes people not always comfortable with him. Um, I don't, you know, I've never found like, I mean, it's it's remarkable that, um, you know, it's Richard Nixon who wins such a landslide in 1972. Here's a guy who's just, you know, I don't think like, I don't think, um, how should I put this kindly? Um, <laughs> he, he, I don't think people really love him, you yeah. know, as as a person um, and as a candidate. But yeah. he's capable of, of of you know of of winning in that way. It's it's remarkable.
0: It really is. I mean, who loved Nixon? I mean, you know,
1: not you know, himself either. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the other. Thing. I mean, not even himself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and, and so on one hand, and I'm just thinking about Nixon as a as a figure of the Republican establishment but also at the same time, the Republican establishment is giving birth to the new right, or at least the the rhetoric of the new right. I mean, can we see this as also like, you know, how the Republican, I mean, yes, there, there are moderate Republicans. But at the end of the day, can we see Nixon as sort of a Republican establishment that really isn't separate from the new right, even though there's an attempt to, you know, Mitt Romney... We, we kind of get the sense that Mitt Romney was at, at his heart, a moderate, but this is somebody who the Republican establishment is the new right at the same time. Do you know, do you, you know that, what I'm saying? I
1: think we've drawn the, yeah, I think we've drawn that line and that, and made that distinction a little bit stronger than it, than it should be. Um, yeah. between establishment and, and, and new right. Um, and I think that when you, you know, when, when the question is when, when will that, when can you see that that line is, is, is not as firm as some people might think about it. Yeah, campaigning. I mean, you know, don't mm-hmm. forget, like Mitt Romney, Mr. Moderate, was campaigning as a hard right guy. Yeah, um, a when severe was, conservative. You know, certainly, when he was in the primary, right, yeah. and uh, and and then had a hard time doing the etch a sketch thing and and trying to drive back to the center. Um, but you know, I, I think that I don't think that the notion of I think the notion that those two entities, the, the establishment wing and the you know new and harder right wing, yeah. are you know in complete and absolute opposition. I don't. I don't think that's true. I think that moderate Republicans will will consistently use hard right tactics, especially when it comes to um, trying to to run a successful campaign.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this sort of dichotomy of the oh, it's the Tea Party and everybody else. It's like no, no, no. The Tea Party is the Republican Party. It that's always exactly was. right. We just gave it a that's new exactly name. Exactly right. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. And I think that that's one of the biggest problems that you know the biggest wake up call for the Republicans is that you know they're they're I think coming face to face with the fact that um, it's not just this is some crazy wing. This is you. You know, I mean, this is what <laughs> this is what uh, and this is it. And yeah. So I. Yeah. yeah, I, I don't – I think that notion of, of making a clean distinction is just is flat-out wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the, the grassroots and the heart of the Republican Party. I mean, I, you, I, you, of course, followed Todd Akin in Missouri, yeah. right? Uh, um,
1: I mean, I didn't – I mean, we got as much as – as probably other people outside of uh, of the state would get, but yeah, yeah, we we'll fall following that absolutely. I mean, I, I, they come, they, you know, they they come back to the guy, right? It's like you know, we want to condemn him and his bad remarks, uh, poo poo, but you know, will we continue to shovel cash towards them if it's if we think we've got a chance to win with this yeah, Of course, they will, because they recognize, yeah, that, you know, that guy matters for them to to win.
0: Well he I when I was an undergrad, I was an intern in the Missouri State Legislature. I knew Todd Aiken. He sponsored oh, really? a, I, he sponsored a weekly luncheon for interns. He was in the mainstream of the conservative caucus of the Republican Party in the state legislature. I mean, I knew him as well the only person I knew better in the state legislature was the guy I interned for. Um I ended up writing something from the St. Louis Post Dispatch about him. I mean, and what I find so humorous is that, you know, he's been around for Nearly three decades in you know, Missouri conservative politics. There was nothing that he said that everybody who knew anything about him knew he would said this a million times before. You know, I mean, he this was not some kind of, kind of guy who just ran for public office for the first time. Um yeah, right. he was a mainstream Republican um in the, in the republican party and you know and i just find and then people were shocked that i knew he was going to say something like that i've been telling my wife for for a couple for months before that like he's going to say something crazy i know this guy and um and for the republicans to be kind of surprised by that i just i i couldn't believe it
1: i think that's a, i think that's exa- i think that's a great story i mean that's that, and that, i think that you saw that happening I mean, Agen's not alone, obviously. There were a lot of stories like that. Of oh, people yeah. People are saying things. But once, once they come out, you know, I think the, the, the conservatives have sometimes had um, this ability to speak this sort of secret language. They yeah. use a lot of code words, you know, and things like that, that, it, that I think makes sense to the people who are listening to them, who agree with them. Yeah. Um, and then when they actually have to go for the general audience and they actually have to go for the entirety of the electorate, um, then suddenly you're face to face with wow. This stuff is really, you know, this stuff really is um, as strange as it as it as it sounds. Yeah. And I think that that I think you know I think what what Nixon's a master at though. Yeah. Is controlling that right? Mm-hmm. I mean he is yeah. he's really good at right. I mean he knows that he's got to placate. I mean it, as much as he's gonna you know take a hard. Hardline um, position on foreign policy issues. As much as he's going to sound at times, kind of like a Joseph McCarthy. As much as he's going to do all those things, he still is able to placate the Deweys, hmm. um, the centrists, the moderates. He that that's the sort of master of politics that I think Nixon had, and I think hmm. it's missing from a lot of these other, you know, you you know, more contemporary, um, uh, conservatives, um, is that they can't kind of keep the cat in the bag. I mean, you know, they they don't know how to play it and then also reel it in when you need to reel it in. Nixon was able to do both of those things. I think that's why he was so, so effective. Um, was he could play every side of it, um, and, and do it, do it really well.
0: So we'll move the story along. I mean, um, so you know, Nixon's secret slush fund is discovered, um, and and so he has to give it. For some people who may not be totally familiar, he he's uh, Eisenhower is considering him dropping him from the ticket. And what you're writing, yep. and maybe I knew this, but I guess I forgot I knew this. If I if I ever did, is that Nixon was told two hours before he this broadcast, this national television broadcast he's going to give by Tom Dewey that Eisenhower wants him off the ticket. That Eisenhower wants yeah. him to use this television time to resign. Do you just want to talk about that yeah. for a minute?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what it's, it's the one. You know, when you have a story that's like this tense, um, and so you know, with all sorts of weird turns, you, you you kind of the narrative kind of writes itself. Yeah, and there's inside of it. This is this is one of these stories that's really. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some really tense moments here. Yeah. So Dewey kind of, Dewey's always this guy who's kind of like, you know, playing himself both sides of the aisle and, and, and there's this tension that's always growing between Eisenhower and Nixon. Eisenhower didn't vet Nixon. As much as I think he, he wanted to, I mean, we've heard that story that I guess (laughs) replicated with Cain Palin. Yeah. Um, relationship. Um, so he didn't really vet him, and then when this stuff starts to come up, he gets really upset and worried. He also knows that to, to throw Nixon off the ticket would be very difficult to do. Um, Eisenhower knows that that's a, that's a tough thing to do, and it would make him look bad. It would make Eisenhower look bad, right? Why would you choose this guy in the first place? Maybe this is about your you know, political judgments in, in general. And so he's very well aware of that. So, but then nonetheless... There's this conversation. It's never really clear if Dewey's like really delivering the message that Eisenhower wanted him to or whether or not he's just kind of trying to, you know, scare Nixon into doing something that Dewey himself wants him to do. It's never really clear, but he gets this news right at the, right as he's about to kind of uh, embark for the television studio. And it just, you know, it, it it makes a guy who's hardwired, nervous, and I you know, really approaching a nervous breakdown and have <laughs> yeah. nervous breakdowns up to the point I just put them on that much more you know of a of a plane of of kind of almost existential nightmare, mm-hmm. and then he goes in and he decides, "I'm not going to resign, um I'm going to turn this over to the American people, and yeah. he says, you know, you tell me what you want me to do, and you tell." The, the RNC, what you want them to do, and and mm. you know he he kind of turns it around, and he and that's again where he's doing this this brilliant thing of saying, you know, I'm I'm the populist in the room. I want the people to speak. Yeah. Um, and he and he takes this event and makes it into this kind of you know, uh, this this sort of referendum on on him, um, and and whether or not people feel that they can trust him.
0: Yeah, no, and it, so this is almost kind of a moment where the right. Discovers unwittingly through Nixon. Well, how, how do you battle the New Deal? How do you battle the you know the popularity of all these social welfare programs? This sort of as you talk about talk about it, this populist authenticity that Nixon unconsciously kind of discovers as the sort of secret antidote for the conservatives to you know make a comeback.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. That's that's yeah. That's yeah. That's the. That's right. Uh, you you cut out a little bit there, so I I'm not okay. sure. If, um Yeah, that well, I might have not gotten everything you you just said, but but would well, you want to explain began with and what you meant? Do Go you want ahead. to
0: explain populist authenticity?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the central theme. I think is that what well, you know. How do you how do you have a person who takes is taking money from industries that we wouldn't usually consider to be the love of populists? the yeah. Oil industry. You know, real estate. These are these are the classic, the actual populists at the late nineteenth century. The people who actually organized something called the Populist mm-hmm. or the People's Party. These were their these were their sworn enemies. These were the special interests that they wanted to drive out of politics. But now you got this guy who's caught with the with money coming from these types of folks. Yeah. he turns the populist thing into can you leave me? Can I be an authentic? Person, do you do I reach you? And this is one of the things that you get when when you read the telegrams and letters that are sent to Nixon right after hmm. the speech that are in support of them. They almost always talk about you reached my heart. Hmm. You, um, you know, some of them are very emotional about you know I I cried when I heard about you know your humble background. Um, you know I felt connected to you. It's that hmm. sort of that sort of appeal that makes populism into kind of a style yeah. rather than the notion of the small guy. Who's upset with the powers of, of of big business and and the business interest? No longer that it's about the style you project, and and what I find to be really kind of ironic is that he he seems to come off as as an authentic person to this television audience. And you got to keep in mind, television is really new for Americans at this yeah. point. Uh, we're not the cynical, jaded people that we are today. Um, so that's that's an important part of of explaining how he's successful at this. But it's really amazing when you think about how he's Nixon is one of these people who wants to come off as authentic, and he's actually staging authenticity. I mean, he's mm. giving the speech mm. in a television studio in a, on a set called the GI Bedroom Den set, where he's got these books that you know are on shelves, and he's sitting at a desk, and his wife's sitting next to him at his side, and all that sort of stuff. And and you know he's trying to say I'm an ordinary average American. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna line out for you what I own and, and, show you that I'm just a humble average American and project the sort of look of a, of this sort of white collar, um, you know, kind of organization man that I think probably resonated in the fifties. And, and, and he, and he's saying, you know, I'm authentic, believe in me, you can trust me. And yet the whole thing is staged. And hmm. I think it's one of the first discoveries that, you know, authenticity itself is something that can be staged. And I think we oh, still yeah. have that desire, right? We have these, we have this really weird, Expectation that a politician can be authentic and yet also be popular and influential. Yeah, um, and that's that's a real. I'm I'm not sure if I can go so far as to say, a, a close to almost an impossibility, but it's a it's a real challenge. And I think we now know that very often it's you know I mean I and I think the person who probably came closest to, to doing this extraordinarily well in our contemporary times was George W. Bush. Yeah, here's a guy. Ivy League, you know, tons of money, comes from a, a super wealthy family that we would associate with kind of East Coast elites, even though, you know, his background's in Texas in large part, and yet comes off and went to Yale and then just comes off as an ordinary guy and stages himself as, as this authentic, ordinary guy. That is, that's, I think, an amazing Work of political genius, Um, and I think Nixon gets it in 1952, and um, kind of sets the template for a lot of people, um, you know, who follow in his shoes.
0: Hmm. No, it's uh, uh, that that's. I mean, as usual, I mean, your your books speak to very kind of contemporary issues. I mean, this is I I really loved reading it. Uh, Just plain Dick. (laughs) Um, I have um, a a typical um, last question, which is, what's next? what are you working on now?
1: Oh, and I have a typical, uh, a typical great answer. I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm, I, 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 uh, I, I, feel like, um, I'm, I don't have anything that I'm specifically working on right now. Hmm. Um, I, you know, feel like, uh, I, I've written, um, a, a book that I'm happy with. Uh, and I, I'm not thinking about the next one, at, at least at not, not at this point. You might huh. be able to call me in, you know, a few months, and I maybe I'll have a different answer for you. Huh. But um, you know, I'm toying around with stuff, but nothing that's that's definitely congealed into something very definite.
0: All right. Well, anyway, I mean, you're you know, you have a book out. It seems like every other year, or um, or maybe it's now every three years. But I'll look forward to the <laughs> next one because uh, this is this is a great book put out by Bloomsbury. So, Kevin Matson, thank you for your time. Um, tell everyone to go out and uh, buy the book and read it. Okay. Uh, that's fantastic. I it's right. been great to spend some time with you, Jeff. Okay. Have a good afternoon, okay? You mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, my interview with Kevin Matson, and uh, what, we talked about his book, Just Plain Dick Richard Nixon's Checker Speech in the Rocking Socking Election of 1952. Uh, join me next week, and we'll be talking about another fine book on new books and politics.